Like you said, my name is Brent. I'm a pastoral assistant here. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet, I'd love to get to know you, to hang out, and to spend some time chatting. In a moment, we'll be reading, like Lance said, from Romans chapter 10. Over the last number of months, we've been reading through the book of Romans, and we've put a title over this series called Rags to Righteous. And it's because we feel that it appropriately captures the themes that we're talking about in Romans, that our best moral efforts to atone our sin and to make ourselves right with God are like filthy rags that we would put before him but that God in his great love for us clothes us with the righteousness of Christ and and so welcomes us into his presence. Over the last few months, we've been wrestling through Romans 9 and 10. We've been agonizing with Paul over the question of why has Israel rejected its own Messiah? He feels burdened by the Israelites' rejection of Jesus and motivated by a deep love for his people, he considers why it may be that that's happened. Romans 9 We spent some time talking about the doctrine of election and that God is sovereign over the ends of salvation. And it's mind-boggling and at times it's confusing and we break our brains trying to get into all of the intricacies of it. And then we meet Romans chapter 10, which tells us that God is sovereign over the means of salvation just as much as he is over the ends. And in it, we get a picture of what the real-time outworking of the sovereignty and salvation of God looks like. We, we know that Romans 10, God is sovereign over the ends, but what does that mean for us now? What does that mean for the day-to-day? How does God's sovereignty play out in the world? Last week, Brian left off talking about how all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And now we'll pick up in verse 14 of Romans chapter 10 to talk about how people become a part of this historic entity called the church, God's people It's my hope and prayer that by the end of our time studying God's word today that we'll come to know that because God's word is unassailably true, that we can confidently share it. And we're going to do that primarily by talking about it in in two big chunks. We're going to talk about the formation of faith. How does faith form as the text sees it? And what are the realities of evangelism as Paul considers Israel's unbelief? Before we read, let's take a moment to pray. We're not smart enough or wise enough or clever enough on our own to be able to understand the text, and ultimately it's God's word, so let's ask him for help to understand it. Our Father, we're grateful for today. God, thank you for your church. Thank you for your people that you've brought together and that you continue to sustain. God, thank you that you saw fit throughout all of history for us to be here now together studying this part of Romans. Holy Spirit, you have preserved this text and you have preserved us for this moment. So would you now open our eyes to the text that we might see your truth? Would the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be found pleasing in your sight, Father? Spirit of God, would you sink these truths deep down into us that we might be changed by them? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. If you haven't opened your Bibles there yet, we're in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. The verses will be up on the screens behind me to follow along. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take the one from the seat back in front of you, home with you. If you need a Bible, we'd be happy for that to be a reminder of your time here at Four Oaks. But without further ado, Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 14. This is God's word. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in, whom, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. 
For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask that Israel not understand. For first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In the first few verses in this first section, verses 14 to 17, Paul talks about the formation of faith. And he uses a series of questions to build on the idea that we left off of last week, that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul has in mind here this this concept that calling on the Lord for salvation is saving faith. And now he's going to work backwards through a series of questions. That was, all right. He's going to work backwards through a series of questions to figure out how do people get to calling on the name of the Lord for salvation. And he starts verse 14 and asks, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Paul here is saying that if anyone is going to call out to Jesus for faith, if anyone is going to plead with Christ for salvation, which he freely offers, they first have to believe in him. And the idea of believing that Paul has in mind here is this idea of of understanding and knowing what's going on and knowing the gospel. It's this idea of of having an understanding of the facts of the gospel so that God the Spirit can apply them and change our hearts with them. Paul puts poignantly what the most crucial facts in the crux of the gospel are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If anyone is going to be able to call on the Lord for salvation, they must know that Christ crucified and resurrected according to the scriptures for the propitiation of sins. And Paul continues in verse 14 with two more questions. Well, how do people believe then? Seems to be where he's going. And he says this, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Paul's saying here that if anyone is going to be able to believe, there's a prerequisite of them hearing it from someone because somebody has preached it to them. Somebody has told it to them. I love that this gives us an insight into what life is like during Paul's times, that it is dependent on people preaching and the words of man. There's no social media. There's no news outlets. It's a mostly illiterate world. Almost nobody can read. So it's not like they can go and post something up in the marketplace and say, okay, go read the gospel. No, they're dependent on people hearing. It's a relational kind of thing that people are sharing the gospel with one another. And the word for, procle- or for preach that Paul uses is similar to the word for proclaim. The idea of when a herald might go and proclaim something from a king. See, a people, people in Paul's time wouldn't be able to know what a king says unless his herald went out into the market square or into the common place for their town and proclaimed whatever the king had to say. The herald isn't speaking his own words. The herald is speaking the words of the person who sent him. And that's where Paul is getting at and where he lands in verse 15. He says, and how are they to preach unless they're sent? A herald, a preacher, must be sent 
And we might want to ask the question, well, who's doing the sending then? And Paul answers this question by proxy as he quotes from verse 6, or in verse 16 where he quotes from Isaiah 52, he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What Paul's saying here is, Isaiah is God's messenger, and it's beautiful when God's messenger preaches the words that God gave him. That's the formation of faith, that God sends people with his word to people who hear, who understand, and who call on Christ for faith. That is the formation of faith. It starts with God's word and ends in faith. And that's why Paul says in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It was always God's plan. God's plan has always been the ordinary telling one person to another for the gospel to be transmitted throughout all the ends of the earth. And that doesn't necessarily mean that all of us have to play the role of a missionary or an evangelist. There are some people that God has specially raised up to commit their lives to the work of spreading the gospel. And we can come alongside them and support them. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is addressing his disciples and he has in mind the whole harvest of people who have not yet come to know Jesus. And this is his exhortation, this is his encouragement to the disciples in Matthew chapter 9. He says this, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We can join in earnest prayer that God would send people to places where he is not known. And our church has gospel partners that go throughout all the earth and even into Tallahassee that people would come to know the gospel who had never heard it before. And how often are we praying earnestly alongside them that God would send them and care for them and provide for them. But we're not off the hook for evangelism. It's not just like God raises up a few professionals, a few evangelists, and a few missionaries, and he sends out just a few people to go and reap this bountiful harvest. Do you know why God has given us missionaries and evangelists and teachers? Paul answers that question in Ephesians chapter 4, in verses 11 and 12, he tells us, and he gave, he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry building up the body of Christ. It's not just a few pros at evangelism. It's not just a few people who took some classes or who are part of an organization that are meant to go out and do the work of evangelism. No, those people are meant to help teach us and give us an example of what we can do in our own ordinary context, in our own lives. Who's in our sphere of influence that we can evangelize to? Our kids or our neighbors or our roommates our co-workers, our families. There are people all around us in our own spheres of influence that we have a call to share the gospel with. There's an impetus for us that we who have God's word are responsible for sharing it because this has always been God's plan A. There's an old theologian who says this about evangelism, John Calvin. He says, it's enough for us to bear this only in mind, that the gospel does not fall like rain from the clouds, but is brought by the hands of men wherever it is sent from above. Who did God send the gospel with to you? How did you come to know Jesus? My guess is that for a lot of us, it's the ordinary preaching of the word. 
a normal person having a normal conversation with us. For me, it was years of an ordinary pastor faithfully preaching ordinary sermons for years and years and years until one day it clicked. For my wife, it was an ordinary VBS leader who just happened to share the gospel, and that's how God chose to meet her in that moment. And we rejoice and we celebrate when we think about the sweetness of when we came to faith, the sweetness of when the gospel clicked for us. And it's something that we ought to celebrate. It's something that should be enjoyed. Because look back at the passage, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The, the feet, the action of sharing the gospel, the going of the gospel, is something that ought to be celebrated in and rejoiced over. Because it is a glorious thing that God has reconciled sinners to himself and sends people with that message. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul acknowledges the task that this is. He says that people don't understand God through God's wisdom, so instead God uses the foolishness of human preaching to reach others. Have you ever thought about how small the human vocabulary is? How many words we don't know? And yet God chooses to use that to contain all of the mysteries that the eternal God would come into the world to die for sins. That's always been his plan, is for us to be a part of that. Is for the body of believers to be a part of that. And do you want to know how it's true? Do you want to know why we know that it works? It's because we're here. We're here because someone told someone told someone told someone who brought the church here. God's plan was never just for the ancient Near East, one tribe of people in the ancient Near East, to know and receive the gospel. But it's always been for people everywhere. And we're responsible for joining in with this historic mission of the church to bring the gospel to all people everywhere. It's easy to get excited about evangelism, to get riled up and to think, all right, we're going to go do it, until we actually go and do it, because more often than not, as we go out and evangelize, we run into some walls, and it's the wall of unbelief. And I think Paul's getting ahead of us here in the text. He, he knows that we're thinking, okay, but if God's word is the means for evangelism and God's word is the mean for, means for faith, then what about Israel? What do we make of them? And I think that this is where we can see the realities of evangelism as Paul considers Israel's unbelief. First, I think Paul wonders if Israel's unbelief comes from them not hearing the gospel. Israel wouldn't have been responsible for God's word sending someone or, or someone preaching to them, but the first thing they would have been responsible for is, is hearing. When someone was sharing it with them, did they listen? And, and Paul wonders, did, did anyone tell Israel? Have they heard? Because if they haven't heard, then they can't understand, and if they can't understand, then they can't believe, and if they can't believe, then they can't call, and that would explain Israel's unbelief. And to answer this question, Paul calls on an Old Testament witness. He calls on Psalm 19. In verse 18, after he asks, have they, Israel, not heard, he quotes Psalm 19. And Psalm 19 is a really interesting Old Testament witness here because he first chooses to quote the part from Psalm 19 that talks about how creation has testified to who God is. It's almost like a callback to Romans 1 where Paul said that everything that can be known about God, namely his divine nature, has been evident since the creation of the world. And Psalm 19 seems to be where that comes from, that creation's voice has gone out into the world and to the ends of the earth, God's character and who he is have been known. 
More than that, Psalm 19 would later go on and does later go on to address not only the general revelation of God and himself through creation, but also God's special revelation, God's specific revealing of himself through his word. He gave Israel written words, his finger on a stone in the Ten Commandments. He gave Israel the prophets, people who proclaimed God's word, God's mouthpiece to them. And God had specifically and specially revealed himself through his word and in his law. And Psalm 19 goes on to conclude that the law of the Lord is a delight, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is good. The testimony of the Lord is sure. So in quoting Psalm 19, Paul is making a pretty definitive case that Israel has heard. They had all of creation testified to them, and they had God's word given to them. So Israel's unbelief can't be that they didn't hear. So he wonders about the next step. Well, Israel heard, but maybe they didn't understand. Look at verse 19. He asks, but I ask that Israel not understand. And Paul calls on another Old Testament witness. He continues this Old Testament Bible study that he's doing. And this time he calls on Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 is a song that God had Moses teach the Israelites after their exile, and, or after their exodus and their wanderings in the desert. And in it, first Moses teaches them to praise God as the rock, as the, one, the only one who can deliver and give salvation. And he goes on to then prophesy in this song and in this text that uh, Paul is quoting here from Deuteronomy 32, that Israel would reject God. They would reject his law. They would turn away from him. They would disobey him through idolatry. And that there is a consequence for that. And the consequence is what we read about here. That God will make Israel jealous of those who are not a nation. And with a foolish nation, he'll make them angry. In disobeying the law, which we've learned about, has always pointed to Jesus. That the law was always intended to be a law by faith in God alone for salvation. By ignoring Jesus, who is the fullest revelation of that law, who is the fullest revelation of salvation by faith alone, Israel has invoked the very curses that they sang about in Genesis or in Deuteronomy 32. So they understood what was going to happen. They understood that their idolatry would lead to the bringing in of the Gentiles, and they knew that it was always supposed to be a law by faith. So what's the conclusion then? If they heard and they understood and believed, then why is Israel rejecting Jesus? And Paul calls on one last Old Testament witness to make it clear. He calls on Isaiah in Isaiah 65. And in verse 21, there's a simple statement about Israel's posture towards all of the goodness and all of the grace of God revealing himself to them. Israel was simply a disobedient and contrary people. They were contrary to God. They set themselves against God. They were disobedient to God. They'd heard the law. They knew the law. They knew what salvation by faith was always supposed to be. And they turned away from it in disobedience. Israel had positioned themselves against God. And that's the simple conclusion that Paul makes. They were given everything and chose to reject it. And then there's proof that God gives them that they missed it by the bringing in of the Gentiles. By going on in verse 20, 
Isaiah also says, I have been, this is God speaking, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask me. The inclusion of the Gentiles and Israel's rejection of the Messiah was supposed to be a signal to them, a big flag waving around that this is the Messiah. This is it. And Israel chose to reject it. It can be confusing and, and frustrating to think about it, and it might be tempting to be discouraged by it, but actually we should ultimately be encouraged by this. Because the end result, the ends of salvation that we've talked about in Romans chapter 9 is ultimately in God's hands. So the real-time outworking of God's salvation now, the means of it, is what we are responsible for. And at the end of the day, Israel chose to set itself against God and be a contrary and disobedient people. So what that means for us is that salvation and people coming to know the gospel, the end of it is not dependent on us. But instead, we are responsible for being obedient in the call to evangelism. And there are a million implications that this has for our evangelism, but we're just going to touch on three briefly. The first is that we need to evangelize so that all people may hear. Psalm 19 says that creation's voice testifies to God and who he is and his goodness. And, Je and Jesus picks that up in Mark 16 as he's commissioning his disciples. He tells them to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, to every living thing, to every living creature. God's plan was always for all the nations to come and bow to him. Philippians tells us that people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will bow before the throne of King Jesus. And we are responsible as the stewards of God's word to share it because that is the means that God has chosen to bring this about. God has always chosen for the means of evangelism to be people going. So we must go to all people. We must proclaim that the only way to salvation is Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. It's worth noting here that this is how we can be sure that we won't end up like Israel as we continue to be faithful to the call of sharing the gospel. And that's the first implication for evangelism. The second is that we preach that all people might understand. It is important for us to be fluent in the language of the gospel. This doesn't mean that we need a theology degree or have to have gone to a hundred apologetics classes or be able to answer everybody's questions, but it does mean that we need to be fluent in the language of the gospel. We need to be able to talk about it with people. And we help learn that through every ordinary church service that we have here. Our liturgy points to the language of the gospel. There's a call to worship that we've been called by God to himself. And we have a confession where we confess our sin before God. And we have an assurance of salvation because as we approach God and confess our sin, 1 John tells us he's faithful and just to forgive them. We preach the gospel and we have the language of the gospel throughout all of the liturgy of our church and it's a language that we need to be familiar with. We would be remiss to talk about the language of the gospel without actually talking about what the gospel is, the good news about Jesus and this is the faith that we profess, and this is the good news about Jesus. This is the beautiful news that is carried by people who are sent by God, and it is this, that we, through our disobedience in God, have been vastly separated from him, a holy and righteous God who cannot look on sin, 
is now against us and his wrath is towards us because of our choice to sin. But God in his great love entered into creation. He sent the Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life that we could never live, a sinless life that did not incur the punishment of sin so that when he died on the cross, God could pour out his wrath onto his Son. And when we call on the name of Jesus for salvation, we inherit his perfect record of righteousness. And more than just his crucifixion, we also proclaim his resurrection, that Jesus was raised from the dead as a foretaste of the glory that we'll experience with him, that one day we will be with God in a world that has no sin. God is coming to make all things new. It's a message of freedom for the captives. It's a message of light in the darkness. It's a message of healing for the broken. That is the gospel and the good news that we proclaim. And we don't have to preach it perfectly. We don't have to get it right every time. But we need to be fluent in the language of it. And we need to be able to talk about it that all people might understand. We preach and we share the gospel that all may hear, that all may understand. And lastly, we do it with all patience. God has humbly taken a posture of patience towards his people as he waits for them. Look back at the passage in verse 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands. It's not like God was waiting for Israel with his arms crossed, looking over his shoulder, saying, are you going to come around anytime? I'm waiting for you. No, God is sitting like a father with his arms open, crying out time and time again, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God is patiently waiting for his people. And we see in the entire Old Testament is centuries of God doggedly following after a people who are contrary to him. And that's the example that we can follow. That though we're met with unbelief and when we run into the wall of unbelief, we don't let ourselves be discouraged. We keep sharing in all love. We keep the arms open wide. Because that's how God has treated us. And we can be encouraged by Israel's example because we're going to go on to read Romans 11. And we're going to read that God has a plan for Israel. It's not like he's just given up on Israel and thrown his hands up. But that God loved all of his people, his church, that he has always seen from the beginning so much that he would step into it towards us. And then he patiently waits. That's what our evangelism can look like where we enter into life with people. We get into all of their sin and we do life with them and we patiently offer the hope of the gospel time and time and time again. And we can do it confidently because this is what God has commissioned for us now. This is the means of salvation now. Romans 9 tells us that God is sovereign over the end, which means we don't have to be concerned with the ends of it. We need to be concerned and focused on obeying God now. And that there are people who desperately need the hope and the message of the gospel. And that's how we join in to the obedience of the outworking of salvation now. I want to end by just sharing a, a quick story of one of my friends who I grew up with. He uh, was always too smart for his own good. Uh, he made sure that all of his teachers knew it in school. And uh, after he graduated, he wanted to go out and find all of the answers to life and to the universe. And growing up, I'd invited him to church and, 
Every time he finished by concluding that he was smarter and knew more and didn't need anything to do with God. And after trying everything under the sun to understand the universe, he was on the brink of starting his own cult. He had a name for it. He was getting ready to, to start inviting people to it. And he watched a YouTube video of a guy sharing his testimony. And God used the ordinary testimony of a random YouTube video to bring him to Christ. All kinds of people, everywhere, that all might understand in the most ordinary way. We can have confidence that that will continue to happen. God has sustained his church thus far. He has brought us here. We are evidence of the truth of God's word. And we can be confident that he'll continue to do this good work through us. So let's pray. Let's pray that God helps us to come alongside missionaries and evangelists. And let's pray that the gospel goes to the ends of the world. And let's pray that God helps us in our own spheres of influence to evangelize well and with all patience.